The Rural Health Voice, Episode 57, Not Alone, Never Was. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What can healthcare providers do to assure that LGBTQIA people have a safe and welcoming environment? Artist KT Taylor joined me to discuss their research on rural communities. Well, welcome, KT. Hi, Beth. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you here. And just to orient everybody, you went to college in Virginia. You went to Holland University. Why Holland? It's a it's a long ways from where you grew up in Idaho. How how did you get to Holland? Uh, that is a question I get all the time. Um, I it's kind of a funny story. Um, I originally wanted to study creative writing um, when I was in high school. Um, I was really passionate about writing and poetry, and I did just kind of like quick little research briefly um, when I was in school, trying to find you know schools with good creative writing programs and. As I think many um, angsty rural kids did, I was like, I want to get as far from home as possible. I was one of those types of people. And so I was looking at primarily creative writing programs on the East Coast and found Hollins um, and was intrigued because it's a historically women's college. And I didn't even know that those really still existed. Um, And then cut to a year later, I'm a senior in high school, getting ready to graduate. I um, had the opportunity to visit Hollins. Um, It wasn't really that high on my radar beforehand. Um, But I had the opportunity to come out for a scholarship prospective student weekend. And I just fell in love with Virginia. I fell in love with the school and the kind of like environment that historically women's college can provide. So it was kind of a weird journey, but I'm really grateful it took me there. Well, we were glad you're able to come to Virginia for a while. How long did you stay in Virginia? (laughs) So I was there for um, four and a half years. So at Holland, you studied rural communities as part of your history major and wrote a thesis subtitled Gay and Lesbian Life in Rural America. How and why did you make the decision to focus on that segment of the population? So when I um, started to gear my studies more towards history, what really drew me to it was the idea of studying the history of marginalized populations and getting the opportunity to tell stories that hadn't been told before, um, including my own stories. And it wasn't until probably late in my undergraduate career that I started to get into more queer LGBT history. Um, and What actually really spurred this thesis on was the discovery of a book. Uh, It's called um, The Boys of Boise. It is a book about um, a quote-unquote scandal that happened in Boise, Idaho, about an hour from where I was born and grew up. Um, And it was kind of this moral reckoning that happened in Boise, Idaho um, in the 50s, the 1950s, um, where there was this fear that um, essentially... The police and politicians at the time had this fear that there was this giant underground ring of gay men um, engaging in illegal acts and um, 
sexual exploitation of minors and all these things. Um, and I was so shocked because, you know, I grew up an hour from there and I had never heard of this happening ever. And I, you know, know so el- some elders in my community who were alive and in the community at the time when that was happening. And I was just so floored and it made me realize that not, I, and I had never really consider- considered rural gay or queer history before. And when I read that, I was like, well, what is there out there that, what else is there that I don't know? And what else is there to uncover and give visibility to? And who else out there is kind of hungry for this history like I was? Was there any information specific to health and healthcare issues in your research? So my research, uh, I it was primary source driven. So a lot of what I was dealing with were letters, diaries, um, direct interviews. Um, and in a lot of those, um, some of the instances people talked about healthcare came up because it was, you know, um, if someone had an STD um, that they, you know, received while um, engaging in acts that they didn't want their community to know about, um, there was a huge barrier to them to get medical care because they didn't always feel safe and comfortable going to their, you know, local doctor. Um, so that was definitely something that came up is issues of healthcare involving safety in the community and uh, safety regarding, you know, those identities that are precious to us. In an interview you did with The Daily Yonder, you talked about the deep sense of isolation and loneliness experienced by LGBTQIA people in rural areas. How do you feel that a lack of rural representation impacts health? It's an excellent question because it impacts health in ways that are so difficult to see and difficult to realize. Um, I don't think I truly realized how hard the isolation I experienced growing up was until I had the distance and the ability to kind of study it um, alongside um, other examples from history. But when you're growing up and you have this feeling that there's something inside you that is just huge and it wants out and it's scary. And then you look around others and it feels like this sense of, I don't, they, they don't have this inside them. I'm the only one with this thing inside me. So you don't know who to talk to it, who to talk to about it. Um, you just feel scared and alone. And also when we think about history specifically, when you don't have a sense of people coming before you when you don't have a sense of ancestors that can really hurt you. So if you, you know, I remember being this little lesbian in Idaho and feeling like I was, you know, one of maybe two other lesbians in the whole state. And I was the only person who had ever done this before. I felt like, how do I do this? This feels impossible. Um, and if I had known, I think when I was younger, that there have been countless people from my area, from my state, from places just like my home that were just like me and lived happy lives, then I think that would have made a big difference because I wouldn't have had to feel like I was up against the world with no, just no one who knew how to help me. You know, it's like, being thrown into the ocean and you're the very, like you're the first person to learn how to swim, you know? Um, You just have to figure it all out on your own. You don't know 
who is safe to talk to about things. So as you're struggling with these really difficult questions, you have to do a lot of it internally. Um, And, you know, that self-reflection is important, but also these are questions that are very scary. They're questions that are like, am, you know, are my parents going to love me? Am I going to be alone forever? Am I going to have friends? And when you don't have someone to say, yes, (laughs) you're going to be okay, um, that fear kind of takes control um, and it's all you have and it can be very difficult. And I think that that was um, a lot of the source of the isolation I experienced. Do you think the rise of social media has made it easier to combat real isolation? Yes, um, I think it has. And this is something that I kind of speculated on in the conclusion of my thesis, um, because I think that there's a lot of opportunity to now do comparative studies of like rural queer communities now, and then rural queer communities before they really had social media, because And I mean, for my own personal experience, that was kind of how I cured my um, isolation. Um, When I was in high school, I started making, you know, internet friends. Um, And, you know, my generation, I think, was kind of one of the early ones to be doing that. So I was kind of trying to synthesize these ideas of stranger danger on the internet, you know, wanting to protect myself and be safe. But also, like, the very first... um, gay friend I had I met on the internet and she lived in Australia and I actually I remember the conversation we had where I said I want to talk to you I think I might be I don't know if I'm bisexual if I'm a lesbian I don't know what and I remember she said oh I've been waiting for this conversation I knew it was coming um and I wouldn't I don't I don't know how I would have um been able to have that kind of um, awakening without the internet. Um, And, you know, now in a time where isolation among the LGBT population is on a rise everywhere, thanks to COVID, especially rural areas, I think the internet now provides just such a necessary space. And, you know, like I said, there are dangers to, you know, those online spaces. And there are ways that you have to be, you know, safe and protect yourself. But I just, I can't imagine my journey as a queer person and coming to terms with my identity and feeling proud and feeling safe without the presence of the internet and the people I talk to on there. And you talked about not knowing who is safe. Thinking about the rural healthcare providers you've seen over the years, did you feel safe with them? So um, that's again another great question. One particular bar- barrier that I think is very unique to rural life, especially small town communities, um, is you know, when you kind of, you know, you paint the idea of, oh, in a small town, everyone knows everyone. Like your teacher is your friend's parent and, you know, the cashiers at the grocery store and, you know, you know, your doctor. But when you are gay, so let's say, you you know, you have a health concern specifically that where your sexuality or your gender is relevant to the conversation and you know you're going to need to bring it up with a doctor. If I, you know, I was in situations where I, like, my doctors were the parents of people who bullied me in school. Um, And even if 
you know, I knew those doctors had confidentiality, you know, methods in place, and they had, you know, made an agreement to keep things safe and secure. They're still, you know, they're still humans, and you just don't know what's going to happen. So, in a rural area, healthcare is very scary because it doesn't always feel private. Um, people talk about small town gossip all the time. And when, you know, your healthcare issues are tied to an identity that could compromise your safety in the community, then, you know, you don't always give healthcare providers the full picture. I definitely had experiences where I did not get the full care I needed because I was afraid to disclose certain things um, to preserve, you know, my own safety if I wasn't ready to come out. Um, And when, you don't have an environment where you feel safe um, in closing everything you need to to your healthcare provider. You really can't, there's no way to get the healthcare you need in that situation. And the Virginia Rural Health Association recently launched our Pride of Rural Virginia initiative. One objective for the project is to provide educational and community opportunities to increase knowledge of LGBTQIA issues among healthcare providers and community stakeholders. So thinking back about, you know, not feeling safe with, with your healthcare providers, what what do you wish that they had done to help keep you safe or or what types of education or training do you think we should provide? Something, ways that I think that they could have made the environment feel more safe for me. Um, when you don't have to guess, there are there are ways that people can make it clear that they are allies to the LGBT community. Um, small things, like if you have a little pride sticker, you know, on the door or displayed somewhere, if you ask people their pronouns, that shows that you... Um, are at least aware of some forms of issues and not are not only aware, taking steps to make those people feel safe in your offices. Um, healthcare professionals need to make it more visible that they are accepting, but I think they also need to know that there needs to not be a pressure because you can be, you, know, you can make the most accepting, safe environment. And some people still aren't ready. So, in terms of training and what I wish healthcare professionals knew, it's that sometimes, you know, it might take your patient a couple visits with you before they really feel comfortable telling you everything. And that is not you know, you shouldn't get frustrated with them or think that they are, you know, wasting your time. It is a survival method that they have formed from having to figure out who in their life is safe and who isn't. Um, And then small things like the amount of times I have had to say over and over again, like, I promise you don't need to pregnancy test me. I'm like not having intercourse (laughs) with anyone with a penis. Like, I don't know how healthcare professionals <laughs> can get over that need to, <laughs> to anyone who has reproductive <laughs> organs, make them get a pregnancy test anytime they come in for anything. But a removal of that would be nice because that is very um, heteronormative. <laughs> yeah. And so that actually brings to mind a story. When we wrote the grant application to get the funding for Pride of Rural Virginia, I based the entire grant application on a story that I had read about a woman who's lesbian um, in a committed relationship, went to the doctor, and the doctor said, okay, are you sexually active? Yes. Are you trying to get pregnant? No. Are you using contraception? No. But you're sexually active? Yes. 
but you're not trying to get pregnant. No, but you're not using contraception. No, but you're sexually active. Yes. And, and this conversation went around and around and around in a circle. And finally, the woman had to look at the doctor and say, look, <laughs> my partner is female. I do not have this issue. Um, and and that, that was the basis for the entire grant application was to make sure that we could shortcut those conversations and not put the patient in the position of having the doctor think she's an idiot for one thing um, mm-hmm. and then just you know, not the uncomfortableness of that entire conversation. So that's that's you know, really a lot of what we're trying to do right there. Yeah, it seems like so... When you're like just thinking about it, it seems so simple. It's like, yeah, if they say that, you know, let them answer the questions. You don't have to interrogate them further and have all these follow-ups. And But some people um, just get it in their mind, you know, that this is how healthcare has to be. Um, and healthcare has to look like this. And also that healthcare should work the same for everyone. And even beyond gender and sexuality, that's clearly not the case. Now, leading up to the healthcare provider education, we're going to start with a series of virtual community conversations around the state, talking directly with LGBTQIA people about their experiences with the healthcare system and their communities and their needs for the future. What advice would you have for VRHA as we host these conversations? My advice would be to just try and get as many perspectives as you can. Um, I think a shortfall of a lot of rural-based work um, is assumptions about what those populations will always look at, especially, you know, in Virginia, when you think of like the Appalachian regions, there's such a huge, wonderful diversity there. You think of the native populations, you think of the black populations, um, the immigrant populations, all of those in Virginia. Um, and they're often let out, left out of rural narratives. Um, so my advice and my hope is to just try and get as many different perspectives as you can, because there's always going to be one thing that you will have never thought that someone experienced. And then suddenly there's a whole group and they say, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so we're hoping to get as many people as possible. We're going to have a, a kickoff on June 12th, the statewide conversation, and then break it down to five different communities um, throughout the summer. So it should be a lot of a lot of fun and a lot of in- interesting information gathering to help support future projects. I'm really looking forward to that. Awesome. That sounds really exciting. We've had several episodes in this podcast about health inequities for the African-American population. And I'm wondering, you know, what parallels we could draw for the LGBTQIA community. On one hand, we know that discrimination prejudice for both groups absolutely exists. On the other hand, dark-skinned people of color can't hide or blend in the same way a, a gay person could choose to, quote, be in the closet. I think a prime example would be Pete Buttigieg not coming as gay until after he was elected to mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Do you see any comparisons between the group or is that maybe a false equivalent? I think that it is difficult to make comparisons for the very same reason you said. Um, People of color um, can't, you know, go go in the closet or wear a mask or, you know, do these things that can make them more fit into these standards society wants us to fit into. So, 
you know, they don't really get an escape. And, you know, when I think of the barriers that I have experienced, they have been, you know, social, you know, worried about social ramifications of things. And there have been some physical ramifications of not being able to um, get the same health care. Um, but when I thinking and thinking, you know, of medical care, when I think of behavioral mental health, there are a lot of ways um, in which the queer community has faced very specific challenges and abuses at the hand of the mental health system. Um, I mean, when you think of how being gay and being trans um, were considered mental illnesses until very recently, um, and gender dysphoria is still diagnosed in the DSM-5 as a quote-unquote mental illness. Um, So there's that difficulty, but, you know, when you think of things that people of color experience, the violence that they have experienced, um, at the hands of the healthcare system, forcible sterilizations, um, being forced to become basically medical test subjects um, without their consent and oftentimes without their knowledge. Um, I think that there is just such a history of violence and exploitation that people of color faced in healthcare that it is difficult to compare them because the scale in my perspective, you know, is just one person is so wildly different. Now, VHA's Pride of Rural Virginia project is focused on health care, but we're also very aware that discrimination can happen in other areas, such as employment and housing. What do you see as the connection between those areas and being able to live a healthy life? Mm-hmm. I mean... I will say that I'm answering this as someone who, as a result of the pandemic, lost my employment and lost my housing, um, and I'm still trying to get back on my feet from that. And when you don't have that stability to know um, where you're going to sleep at night, you don't have the stability to know, you know, I can pay my bills next month. Um, it is stressful. Um, if So if you are someone who already um, suffers uh, from mental health struggles, it will just compound onto that um, and can exacerbate things, make things more difficult. Um, It can be, you know, bad for you physically because if you don't have a, if you don't have housing, if you don't have stable employment, you know, you might not be eating right. I know at my, you know, darkest points of the pandemic, it was you know, eating wasn't a joy for me. It was like, okay, I just need to get the bare minimum of what will get me through this day and what will empty out my pantry. And when you're doing that, you just aren't able to focus on like your mind and your body isn't able to focus on anything else, but like the bare minimum of survival. And when you're just in that survival mode, you're just getting run absolutely ragged and no one can do it for long. um, I think without mental or physical and health impacts, um, whether they become apparent or not. Yeah, we talk a lot about the social determinants of health, housing, education, employment, all those. Sooner or later, it's going to take a wear on your body. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's also this aspect of it that it's like, you don't know when it's going to end. You know, there's not this end point where you're like, okay, well, by this point, it just feels like it's going to go on forever and ever. And you're always going to be in this struggle and it just makes it so your body can't rest. Yeah. 
As a way to combat the social isolation-related COVID, you started a zine titled Not Alone Never Was. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the zine um, came a little bit from uh, my thesis that we talked about earlier. Um, One of the main sources that I studied was independent magazines and publications um, put out by uh, rural queer folks. um, And I just loved reading those. It was such a joy. And then uh, when the pandemic came around, um, I was experiencing a sense of isolation that I hadn't really experienced. It felt since I was you know, a little angsty, closeted kid in Idaho. Um, And so I was finding myself, again, needing solutions to that isolation. Um, And then, and I had also been uh, working towards, you know, using the pandemic um, and my newfound unemployment, trying to take advantage of that by building my career as an artist, which is what I've been doing for the past two years, trying to um, work towards being a career artist. And so the isolation... Uh, coupled with more time for my art, and then uh, Springboard for the Arts, which is an amazing arts organization organization um, based out of the Twin Cities, who also has an office in Fergus Falls. Uh, they were offering funding uh, for art projects to combat social isolation. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I've been thinking of, is how can I use my art to help not just myself feel not isolated, but other people? Um And I was like, one thing that I just want is I just want someone who, you know, I can talk to almost like a pen pal. And I was like, I want everyone to have a pen pal. And so I wanted to create this zine that was like, anyone who could have it, it would be like if they just got a bunch of pen pals all at once and like got to receive this wave of community. Uh, So that was kind of how the zine was born. Well, I had a chance to read it. It's a great piece. We'll make sure that we link it in the show notes so other people can get their hands on it as well. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. It was so a a gift to create. Excellent. The background for VRHA's Rural Pride Project was a report by the LGBT Movement Advancement Project that pushed back against the stereotype that only straight people live in rural areas, and if you aren't straight, you get out as fast as you can and never look back. Are, are you familiar with that study? Did it resonate with you? Um, I'm not familiar with that specific study, but um, when I uh, was working on my thesis, uh, part of that was doing a literature review, um, doing some comparative work about what I was finding to um, queer historical narratives about urban um, centered in urban areas. And something that a lot of historians um, said was kind of boiled down to this idea of like urbanness is essential to like the forming of queerness. And I really strongly disagree with that. <laughs> um, and I, growing up, I definitely felt this sense of that I was an outsider, that my existence was antagonistic to my town and my community um, and that I didn't belong. But now that I have gained, you know, some distance and, you know, done the work that I've done, um, I am just, you know, I recognize I'm just as much a part of this town as anyone else. And just because the gay people that grew up on your t- in your town feel the need to move out doesn't mean that they are not a part of that town and a part of that community. And 
I think that it is less an issue of numbers and more an issue of perspective and the way people view rural areas. Um, and it's, it's a conversation I have. I have a close friend here um, who is also a non-binary lesbian, which, so we feel very lucky to have each other in Idaho. And, you know, we talk a lot about how there's this kind of confliction between, you know, I go out and I want to blend in. I want to be safe. I want to not get weird looks at the grocery store. But then on the other hand, I want to go out and I want to look like (laughs) the gayest person they've ever seen so that they can know that I'm just as much a part of this community as they are. And that this community, you know, create, you know, I was raised in this community and I still exist this way. Um, So that like concept that like, queerness could not exist in rural spaces or doesn't is I hear that a lot and I very much so enjoy pushing back against it. Something I've observed is that rural by itself is an identity. People from urban areas may label themselves as being from Chicago or from Philadelphia, but they don't see quote urban as being its own identity the way rural people see themselves as being from rural. You know, there's there's a kinship with me being from rural Minnesota and you being from rural Idaho that I don't think urban people necessarily get. Is is that something that you've noticed as you've researched rural identity? Oh, absolutely. And that was actually something that was really interesting. And my thesis was one of the areas I talked about was um some of the isolation that rural queer people experienced was feeling different than not just that they didn't have representation of rural queer people, but the representation they did have a very urban centric um, LGBT identity and scene was that they were like, Hey, I'm not just gay. I'm also like a farmer and like, none of that stuff is for me, you know? And so I think it is, just really interesting. They were like, they were like, you know, I am gay. Like we have that in common, but also my life is so different from yours. I have such different val like like values and priorities like that affect my day to day life. Um, and then on a personal level, yeah, I definitely experience a kinship with other rural folks. Um, my best friend from Hollands um, grew up in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, um, and when we found each other, it was like it just like sparks because even though she was from Virginia and I was from Idaho, we could tell very quickly that um, our, how we were raised was very similar. The environment and community we were raised in was very similar. Um, And we just understood each other um, and didn't have to explain ourselves in a way that I don't always experience um, with people from urban areas. Absolutely. You know, as we've started the Pride of Rural Virginia, something that's pleasantly surprised me was the level of support we have received. Healthcare providers, churches, universities, all sorts of organizations have shown up to join. Does that surprise you? I think it does surprise me a little bit. Um, I like to believe that I, I try and be optimistic and hopeful, but I definitely do have some pessimistic expectations for the world. Um, so that does surprise me in some ways, but also I do know that I have encountered a lot of people in rural spaces that are, want to be allies. 
um, and have probably done things that have been harmful to queer people in their communities, but they just didn't know. So I do think that there is a large population of people out there, especially, you know, people in healthcare, um, who want to do better, but just don't have any of the tools. And so I could definitely see um, this being a really exciting opportunity for them to get to learn in a way that they maybe haven't been able to before. Well, we're going to try to give them all the tools they need. <laughs> all right. Last question. Question I asked all my guests. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? Okay, I'm gonna, this is, if I could do anything, so I'm gonna get a little grand here. So um, another important part of my identity is I'm an enrolled member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Um, and um, what completely changed my perspective on healthcare was going to this Indigenous-led clinic in the Twin Cities. It's a Native American community clinic in Minneapolis. And their approach to healthcare changed my life. I mean, it changed my perspective on healthcare. It changed. I started going to a doctor more regularly because they are so accepting. Um, they asked for my pronouns, um, upon introduction. Uh, when I get paperwork, you know, that says blood results, um, they will, I, it, the first time I saw this, I cried, but I'll get blood results and the paper will say, um, normal like results for males this age blah, blah 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 results for females this age blah 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 and my doctors will cross that out and handwrite results for you you know what your results should be in this range um and small things like that and i think that the fact that it is an indigenous led organization is so much a part of why it has been so successful in giving people good fair healthcare so if I could do anything to fix healthcare, I would just put a lot of Native people in charge. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I, I will say that's probably the first answer we've had along those lines, but there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, KT. We appreciate you joining us today. Yes, thanks, Beth. Thank you for having me. And just, I appreciate so much the work that VRHA is doing, especially in a state like Virginia, where it has a bit of my heart. Um, and, you know, having these conversations is so important because for a lot of people, it just has to start with a conversation. That's KT Taylor discussing the need to have healthcare in a supportive environment. Links to their work can be found in the show notes. BRHA's statewide Pride of Rural Virginia kickoff will be held June 12th. If you want an invitation to this virtual event, email us at staff at vrha.org. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.